My colleague Steve Nelson and I talked with Lisa Johnston of VWM Wealth about his recent research, the world of financial advisors, the health of the sector, and about technology and regulation. Steve, because I just loved what you did with the SOTAN report, the State of the Advising Nation report. There's so much interesting stuff in there. But you live in the Landcap bubble with me, and Lisa lives out in the real world and actually talks to clients and does business with people. So I thought just getting the two of you together would kind of balance things off a bit. So that was my plan. Anyway, let's see how we get on. For the record, Lisa, just kind of introduce yourself. What's the name of your business? It's VWM Wealth. We're a small uh, boutique-style financial planning firm based in Glasgow. Uh-huh. I'm the managing director. How many advisors do you have? We have got three and we look after 85 families. Okay. That's other client book. That as a ratio, okay, 35, eight, eight, eight so, so families rather than individuals, but still that's it's quite a low ratio, isn't it? Yes, that's sort of our um, unique selling point kind of speak. That's our, our model. So we're quite protective of that model. We're, we generally work with high value, low volume, and that translates into a lot of time that we spend with the, the family. So the family can be you know, some children or yeah. it might just be a couple, but we, I think uh, if I'm being very honest, the family thing is actually more about treating people like people instead of clients. I think clients always sounds like a, I don't know, somebody at the car wash or something. I don't know. With family, it's just nicer. <laughs> has, it been, has that been the business model from the outset? Have you always done it like that or did that evolve once you got started? Well, I led uh, MBO with two of my colleagues off the firm in 2019. So the firm wasn't set up by me. It was set up by a guy called Ken Welsh back in 2002. At that time, he worked with two other advisors who latterly, uh, one of them retired, one of them went out on his own. And at one point, Ken just decided to make that cut, which was to decide to focus on um, high net worth and low volume. And that was, I think, as a result of a sort of lots of different things that were going on in the profession, which obviously has changed a lot over the years. I had just joined the firm when this was kind of going on. He was doing a lot of work at the time with Brett Davidson. And I think Brett gave him the, the courage and the conviction to to make that step. And it was definitely a fortuitous one, both for the company and, and you know, those of us who then came in behind Ken. But yes, it was a very conscious decision. And he was very brave at the time because he cut a lot of recurring income to do it. Right. Okay. So I'm sorry, for, forgive me. I didn't recognize Brett Davidson. It's not a name I recognize. Um, so what's his, his relevance to this? So Brett is a consultant. He's got quite a high profile with consultancy around going into businesses and helping them to maximize or achieve growth. I would probably describe Brett as a bit of a thought leader. Would you recommend him to other advisors? Yes. Okay. Yes. He's very, very good. He, he speaks quite often in, um, you know, sort of PFS or CISI things, does white papers. Okay. He has a program, I think, that firms can go into. And I suppose that really he's a bit of a, probably a, a coach from that perspective as well. Yeah, yeah really, really interesting guy. And uh, I suppose like a lot of consultants and coaches and things like that sort of held a mirror up to Ken and said, yeah. this is how things are, how do you want them to look? And they worked together to to make some of that happen. And part of that move was to make the business focused much more on um, time and added value to clients. That's really interesting. We might come back to that in a little while. But Steve, let's start with the, the State Advisor Nation because um, that was that for me, that was the kind of hook of why I wanted to do this podcast because I thought it was such a, an interesting piece of research. That was holding a mirror up, I guess, to, to the state of the advisor sector at the moment. So 
pick out the highlights for us. What do you think was the really interesting stuff in there? Oh man, that's a that's a <laughs> tough one, Tom. Because yeah. I mean, you claim to have read it all, and I've I've no reason to disbelieve a man of your stature. But as you know, there's 87 questions in there, and you can pivot the data in all kinds of different ways. So it's a big old report. Okay, disclaimer: um, I haven't done the pivoting. I have. <laughs> I, I, I read the I read the output. I read the download of it, but uh, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't yeah. go and rummage around in the data. Yeah, and listen, credit where credit's due. Our new colleague Liz Liz Evans has done wonders with her data already. So you know, I'm well on the way to being made redundant, which <laughs> you know it depends on how you might feel about that. But I guess there's three or four things that jump out, and maybe we'll use these as a as a jumping off point for various bits and bobs of the discussion. But if we just focus on you know three or four of the main headlines, one is the health of the profession, I think, where now we definitely do operate in a specific corner of the market. We over-index or sample size over-indexes in independent planning-oriented firms, but our quantitative data shows that these firms are in relatively rude health. You know, in what have been two of the most challenging trading circumstances for all kinds of different sectors for reasons that I'm sure we, there are plenty of other podcasts that are talking about COVID. So let's not go there. But, you know, we know how difficult the past couple of years could have been for various professions, but they, they have stood firm. Other, the planning profession certainly has stood firm. So when we measure things like turnover year on year, the overwhelming majority of firms are posting either static or in some cases significantly increased growth. So I think 90% in the last year are either level or up on turnover, on pure turnover terms. Then when we look at it from a slightly different angle and we look at growth aspirations and taking on new clients, what we observe are very, very stable businesses. So they're businesses that don't have to go searching for where the new client's going to come from to pay the bills. They're very stable, very secure operations. So that's kind of one headline. Another headline is, is actually part of the reason why State of the Advisor Nation was born where we collectively, not just me within the business, grew tired of seeing kind of simplistic, reductive statements in the, whether that's in marketing material or in some of the stuff you would see in the news around advice firms want this and advice firms want that, or advice firms look like this. And they're we, not in homogenous mass. No, nah, they're not. They're not. And, and we kind of knew that. And I think most people who, well, of course, the planning profession knows that, but most people who operate just to the side of that in their heart of hearts, knew that, but we couldn't prove it. So all the stuff we collect around centralised investment proposition adoption and segmentation and technology adoption and platform adoption, once you start looking at the data underneath, you you quite quickly conclude that there's like a, a vanishingly small chance of two firms looking the same, unless you are you know vertically integrated and mandated to use certain things. You know, there's 25 different platforms out there in the market, give or take. There's, you know, nine or 10 different back office choices. There's four or five different risk profilers, cash flow modelers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And once you start layering some of that on top of one another, you know, notwithstanding the fact that there are clear market leaders in, in some of those areas, the, the chances of two firms looking the same and having the same signature from a, a technology and investment perspective is practically zero. One in three and uh, a half million, I believe, was the number. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of attention-seeking headline that we <laughs> that we put up on the, the, the Lancat Live event, Tom. But yeah, based on the 
the different permutations in, in our study is one in three and a half million chance of two firms looking the same. And no doubt, immediately what we're going to find out after this podcast is that there are two firms that have stumbled upon the same kind of setup. But I think, you know, that that's all well and good and kind of interesting. And we can, I can stroke my relatively poorly formed beard and go, well, isn't that, isn't that cool? But that has all kinds of reads across to things like, you know, if you're a technology firm, trying to work on how to integrate some of this stuff together, it actually might well be more difficult than, than one might imagine. So that's kind of interesting. Mm. And then two ones just to finish off on is I've got the word mediation written down here. And that is where we consistently observe year on year that there is a breakdown in trust and there's a breakdown in communication between the regulator and our corner of the sector and the, the planners that we engage with where there is a tangible frustration that regulation is hitting hitting the wrong parts of the sector hardest. And I don't think we're going to win any prizes for uncovering that, but I think it's proof that works alongside some of the stuff that you see leaking out on social media and below-the-line trade comments. And then the last point is around the advice gap, where we would question whether the sector, the, w- the way it's set up at present with all the things we've discovered around segmentation, with all the things we've discovered around health of the profession and this apparent absence of need to grow firms from the, the, the base that they're currently operating in, isn't the set of circumstances that is ready to, to solve the advice gap. So those are four kind of things that, that are on my mind. There's obviously a shed load of other stuff underneath, Tom, as, okay, as you know. Really interesting. And I guess your last point there about the absence of the need to grow and the advice gap thing also links back to your first point. And, and I was really struck by the numbers in the reports that there were so many businesses saying, yep, you know, we're just doing all right here, thank you. Growth, profits, everything's looking fine. So I, I guess nothing stays still forever. But I guess my question coming out of that is have we – and, and, and Lisa, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on this from, from the perspective of your business. Have we reached a steady state now? We've got income, costs, client numbers, tech. I mean, okay, there's always problems with tech. and But essentially, everything's in a degree of harmony and balance. And, and we're serving the 8% of the population. And that's it. That's what we do as, as an advisory sector. That's that's just fine now. Probably from my business perspective, I probably say, yes, there's a lot of truth in that. But I suppose maybe from a more of a... A moral perspective, the advice gap is real. And obviously, you have spoken about this before many times that the financial planning community, you know, you are living in a bubble because you're dealing with 8% of the population and generally they've got some money. So, the advice gap definitely is something that's real. But I don't know if there's the financial planning business entities. Is it their responsibility to fix that or to plug that? And even if it were, would they have the tools to do so? I don't think so. But, you know, I think it's some, certainly something that's going to continue to be a massive part of the conversation. And I don't think it's financial, you know, my type of financial planning business can really do very much about that. It's just we, we can't make it profitable. So you can't really build a business on that. So it's um, really looking for solutions that are going to, you know, going to make that work. Okay, so um, that was really going to be my next question is, you know, would your business evolve to address that advice gap? And you've kind of answered that. I'm also interested, and this comes back to Steve's third point around the, the trust with the regulator. And I, I want to kind of just stay on the regulation. Of, was, I think it's a really interesting area. But we've got the FCA sort of hinting at moving the goalposts, changing the terms of engagement, maybe shifting the advice guidance boundary. 
you know, there are, there are plenty of hints that that's happening from various papers they've put out and a leak that was into to, to money marketing recently, just sort of suggesting that they're, they're, they're actively exploring all of this. So if they do, and I, th- I think you've kind of answered it in your last comments, but would that make any difference to how your business operates? Would that tempt you to, to expand your operation to maybe fill some of that advice gap? I think I'll have to be very honest here and say I haven't heard any of these whisperings. So what is it, first of all, that they're suggesting that might happen? Okay, they put out an investment strategy paper towards the end of last year, Uh which talked about, and I think they were mainly looking at fund management firms and platforms. So it was was kind of the big boys and the manufacturers, but saying, look, maybe we should give you a bit more latitude to steer customers towards specific outcomes like you know oh you need a you need an ISA maybe you just need a growth fund you know, so so there was a clear hint in that paper that they might allow more latitude for firms which at the moment just won't go into a lot of that territory for fear of straying over the advice boundary mm-hmm. and then there was this this money marketing piece earlier this week where it appears the FCA is actively consulting with the industry quietly behind the scenes not a public consultation but it has you know they, they published a a model of how some of the that those sort of changes might actually operate in practice. Yeah, so it's clearly on the FCA's mind uh-huh. that, that maybe we need to change things a bit. Yeah, I think it obviously is. But I, again, I think what happens with the regular quite often is that they identify there's an issue here and they spend a lot of time talking about the issue and highlighting the issue and talking to other people that might understand the issue. But so far, I don't really see any solutions that are workable that, you know, is going to allow a person to, a person or a firm to operate in this kind of new utopia landscape where you can tell people what to do, but you won't be on the hook for having told them. So I'm a bit skeptical about it, Tom, to be honest. I, I do think that, you know, technology, they're, they're, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm not threatened at all by robo advice because I don't believe you can do robo advice, but you can do robo transactions. And there are large swathes of the population who will not do more than their eyes and their pension alliance every year. And if a a piece of technology kind of nudged them to put a few pounds away every month and to take out some life cover and be the the robotic version of the guy from the pre coming around to knock the door every day. I don't think that that would be a bad thing because it would be a nudge in the right direction. What I do wouldn't be threatened by that. And I think that for all the kind of negative connotations of, you know, seals of policies and things in the past that way, at least in those times, people who were not affluent did have life cover and they did have a little bit of, you know, money put away in a savings account every month. Whereas these days that's not maybe perhaps the case. And the growth of technology and apps and savings and this sort of nudging software has actually helped a lot of people who are, you know, in their 20s to get a bit of financial education. I think that's great. You know, I really think that's really good. Yeah, yeah. Something else Steve highlighted in the the State of the Advisor Nation report that just really struck me and just kind of resonated with how you were describing your business and your approach to how you deal with your clients is, and forgive me, Steve, if I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but the sense that, Financial advisors have moved, I think this kind of sounds kind of like what you were describing, have moved to much more of a kind of behavioral, holistic relationship type of financial planning where you work with your clients, you develop a relationship. It's about helping them lead their lives better. That seems to be how advisors like to see how they deliver value to their customers. But Steve's distinction in the, in the paper was that's the advice of you. When you come to firms, Firms tend to still see the business a bit more in terms of, yeah, we do tax optimization, investment selection, product suitability. And the thing that struck me about that is those are all things that are easier to measure 
right? So if you're running a business, and particularly if you're responsible for the compliance of that business, you probably are going to focus on the more measurable stuff. But if you're the, you know, you're doing the frontline client-facing stuff, you probably are, you know, you want to be the person who who works with your clients. Yes, I mean, I think that's very much a, a growing trend, and as a firm, that's where we would see a lot of our value from the time that we spend with with the families that we work with. And I suppose if I was trying to sort of think of analogy, it's like it's like if you go on an on an airplane flight and let's say you're in your first class having you know, a really wonderful experience around you there is a massive technical operation some of it's done by machines some of it's done by people some of it's done by you know auditing figures but to get you from destination a to b there is a lot of technical work goes on that as an individual flying you know it goes on but you've no idea how much or the extent to to what that is but if you see a big massive plane in the sky it's quite an accomplishment that that actually happens at all but as an individual your experience is sitting in a lovely comfy seat and you know having a nice glass of wine and I think financial planning is a little bit like that that for the clients and the families that we work with we want them to have a really great experience and they can only have a great experience if the educational part around money and the behavioral part and the relationship that they have with money is something that's comfortable to them and and, and it's open and is spoken about but underneath you still have the you still have the tech you know the tech is the you know the technology and the tax calculations and the investments and of course it's really important that we all do that really really well and we're all qualified you know it's not the outcome the outcome is the experience for the client and i think that that will just continue and more and more and more firms are adopting that because the tech and the tax and the investment and things you know a lot of that will be machined you know, that you know that will continue to happen, and that's great. You know, we should embrace that. But it's never it's never going to be cheap. That's not the EasyJet solution, is it? That's 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 not no. going to be. That's never going to be the the mass market stuff. So, Steve, let's just kind of stay with that tech stuff because you talked about the the multiplicity of platforms and back office systems and cash flow and tech integration and so on. And something else that came out of your report was the the gripes that persist about you know advisors still find that stuff doesn't always work the way they want it to. I think you brought this up at the Lancat Live, this kind of cognitive dissonance, that on the one hand, advisors say, oh, well, yes, of course, I'll select best in breed for each of those components. But then they complain about when it doesn't work in sync. And you kind of touched on this just now. Why can't someone just introduce a one ring to unite them all? Why, why is it proving so hard to link all this stuff up? God, there's a whole heap of stuff underneath that, Tom. But even at a, even at a really basic level... There is no one proposition out there, and it's sorry to introduce that word because it's an awful word in the context of a proper grown-up discussion, but there's no one suite of products or services that can enable a suitable solution for everybody. So forgive me for interrupting you briefly, but it's not so much the components. I appreciate components are always going to have to be selected relevant to the particular business that's using them. But it's the connectivity. It's the, you know, we have APIs now. Why is it still always so hard to make things connect up effectively? There's different reasons for that. I mean, there's, on a very, very simple point, there's different technology underpinning each of these systems. There's often different approaches to, to data on these platforms. I remember I spoke to an advisor a couple of years ago who used two different platforms running the same set of model portfolios, right? So the same underlying holdings, same share classes, but at some point in time, one of the holdings, so a single fund within a suite of models, had a name change. It was either the the name of the fund itself or a rebrand of the, the asset manager. And two different platforms took us ever so slightly different approach. 
in the naming convention for this underlying holding. And the net effect is when this advice firm started to get into things like client reviews and client reporting, there was someone's job once a quarter to go into this whatever data download in whatever form and manually make alterations to to these fund names. So, I mean, that's just one tiny example, but there's an army of administrators and paraplanners throughout the UK that are propping up some of that erosion and failure demand that we would call it within the sector, where it's just these little kind of grunty things that slow down life. There's also, I was on Twitter while I was having my lunch, you know, 10 minutes before coming on to the podcast, Tom, and I saw that someone... I'm, I'm, uh, trying, I'm trying to avoid Twitter at the moment, given what's going on. Well, especially today, um, of all... I keep failing, but yeah, sorry, go on. And uh, there was someone quoted something like 150 days for a settlement uh, on a death case from a legacy provider. So when we when we start to talk about integrations and modernizations of technology, often you have to look at cases like legacy providers and, and you know, we all know the names of, you know, two or three of the main warehouses who soak up some of the, the old products and question, you know, what would be their motivation to revolutionize and become more integrated? Because all that means is their book of business would run off quicker. Where is the, the kind of sphere of influence there to make that happen? And so that, there's all that yeah. kind of stuff. And that's before you even get into things like just pure administration breakdowns where, you know, I made this point a couple of weeks ago, but how many times have you seen firms complain in the last year where they phone up a provider and they say, we're dealing with above average demand. We're dealing with above average demand. Month number three, we're dealing with above average demand. Like, that's not how averages work. So, you, know, <laughs> you, need, sooner, you need to recalibrate, guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sooner or later, that becomes a, that's not a demand issue. That's a supply yeah. issue. Yeah. I think that's actually a regulation issue as well, because you know all of those issues around the freedom of assets moving and you know, service times and things like that. You have to, you know, we all have to remember underneath it that there's a person at the end of that with money that they may need. And I don't think the regulator does enough to legislate for the necessary change to happen so that access to money and the movement of money is free. So I worked on, I'm going back a couple of years now, but I worked on an industry initiative to try and just kind of bring some sense of order to transfers across across platforms and, and businesses. And that was a kind of collaborative effort that was working with the FCA. The FCA was kind of going, look, industry, put your house in order. We really don't have to regulate on this. Could you please sort it out? Because Because it's messy and complicated. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that interested me about that was the FCA was quite ideologically wedded to the notion that everything, as much as possible, should be done in specie. You should shift the assets rather than turning it into cash and moving the cash. And pretty much everyone I was talking to in the industry at that point was saying, well, that's all very well, but actually things work a lot quicker and a lot more easily and there are fewer errors and it costs less if we just turn it into cash and move the cash. But that's not where the FCA was at. So I don't think the FCA is always... Uh, you know, it's not it's not always in sync with how things Yeah. The the main source of assets transferring onto platforms or certainly a significant portion of the assets is from legacy products or life co products where the same asset class won't exist. Yes, so you're gonna have So to that's where the, the real world and you would find that out in five minutes by speaking to the people who do these things. Yeah. So and that's where we keep coming back to the point of mediation where there's just a lack of seemingly or we observe anyway there's a lack of productive dialogue between the profession who are we observe as being the best of the best within financial services and the regulator 
It just yeah, seems like it doesn't very, need to be that yeah, way. I feel about that really, really strongly because you've got a profession that's full of really highly qualified people who have the consumer's interest at heart. So, you know, where what better pull are you going to get of people where the regulator could come if they were a bit more open and say, we're thinking about legislating this way, we're thinking about doing that. Can we start to be a, bit, a little bit, you know, closer to the profession? I think Keith Richards made a lot of progress with that yes, within Keith the PFS for a long time and that that certainly started to move in in the right direction but there's a lot of sort of big corporate interests and things that that come into play there and you know you have to be understanding obviously that you can't just um, wave a magic wand and and fix everything but there are a lot of things like you know like gripes that I would have about method pricing and how that's expressed you know at one stage us in the financial planning community were having to tell our clients well this fund is paying you to hold it no it's not (laughs) well that's how the calculation works so you better write it down and, you know, that sort of thing really, really guiles me. And it's because they won't go into the fund management industry and wield the axe, which is what needs to be done. The same thing with the DB whole entire debacle. You know, if they really sat down with a lot of pension transfer specialists and said, these are the rules we're thinking about coming out, how do you think maybe some unscrupulous people might take advantage of that? It wouldn't have t- taken a rocket scientist to work it out, but they didn't do it. They brought the rules out Lisa. and then tried to legislate later. So if they had a better dialogue, a lot of this stuff, could be avoided. Well, yeah, I agree with you, but it's also really interesting. I remember sitting down with directors of the FCA four years ago, five years ago, you know, when it was already happening and saying, you know, look, guys, there's some bad stuff happening here. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you should go and look over there, right? And they're going, oh, yeah, okay, right, yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of consultation around the DB rules, and they, they still did it. I've been really struck. Look, you know, what's the, what's the financial services compensation scheme levy now? It's what, 900 million, something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a huge sum of money. You've got all the FCA levies, the fees. The industry pours a lot of money into regulation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've highlighted some of the shortcomings there. And I mean, I think the, the, the British Steel particularly was a particularly egregious mm-hmm. example where everybody knew bad stuff was happening and really no one's been held accountable for it. So, I mean, this is a question coming to both of you, whoever wants to pick it up. What, what would better regulation look like here? How do we move forward from here if, you, if we had that magic wand? This would never happen, but I'd love the FCA to be accountable to the financial planning community instead of the other way around because we are paying for it, we're funding it, and the regulation that you get out the other side as a, as a user of the system, you know, you have no input to it, you have no feedback to it, and... Just what you're saying, really, just more, you know, what Steve has already highlighted, just more collaboration. You know, there needs to be, it's quite evident to me that the people in the FCA who make policy don't do financial planning. You know, at the very early days, whenever the, the DB stuff started to be looking a bit suspect, sent questionnaire out, and I looked at it and it filled it all in all great. And, I, you know, as a, as a person who's practicing in that area, I looked at the spreadsheet and thought, well, you're not going to catch any cowboys out with this questionnaire. This is rubbish absolutely rubbish so whoever whoever's designed that is just not really getting the point so they need to get people in who are getting the point but i suspect the fca it's not just their job to police or provide regulation around financial planning they've got a much wider remit than that and the remit's probably a bit too big do you think do you think there's just kind of too much whack-a-mole going on for the fca yeah yeah they just don't they just don't have the focus that's needed i mean we're, we're all working in financial planning and people are paying us good money to do a really really good job for them and they're not doing that because it's it's easy simple stuff you know a lot of it's very complex so it needs complex attention and the regulation needs to be constructed with people giving input to that complexity in the consumer interest you know making sure that whatever the rules are 
created and the policy things are put together, that they actually go and speak to you know, some clever brains in financial planning and say, right, well, you know, what are the consequences of this going to be? And I think probably if you spoke to the FCA, they would say that they do that. But whenever you see the rules coming out, you just think, well, who are these people? (laughs) Yeah, just to pick up on that last point there a little bit, Lisa, sometimes reading the the final output and guidance from the regulator I don't think helps Mm. or creates a kind of... uh, try to explain this as, as best I can, but see, going back to the prod guidance, right? The initial reveal of the prod guidance, we had a, a, a sub-industry immediately afterwards, all working away interpreting and what, in scenario A, okay, so who's the, who's the manufacturer here? Who's the distributor here? Ah, but how about if I, how about if I'm running a discretionary portfolio? Does that make me the manufacturer? So how about this? How about that? You know, I'm a firm believer in the, the Pareto principle kind of conquers all and that most the overwhelming majority of stuff is relatively simple that goes on and some rules-based and scenario-based examples and how it aligns with new regulation wouldn't go amiss and sometimes it feels a little bit like you know that we all know that the regulator is principle-based but you know here's the legislation get on with it and then there's all this wastage throughout the sector of people having these you know debates uh, and arguments and this, that, and the next thing. And all of that at the end of the day is customer money, either yeah. directly mm-hmm. or indirectly. So it feels like maybe sharpening up and helping people who are running businesses mm-hmm. with a little bit more guidance and a, real, a little bit more real-world language to supplement some of this might make the profession and the regulator feel a little bit more connected. Oh, so much the case. And I, I think what run, runs sort of parallel to that, there was a bit of a conflict with what Tom said at the start, which is that no set of planning firms are the same. But there is a lot of stuff that comes. Um, we did a, a seminar recently with the FCA and it was to do with the changes to the ICAP documents and capital adequacy. And because we've got discretionary permissions, we were in this seminar. And I can tell you from the start to the end of it, I've never heard so much corporate jargon spoken in my entire life because the whole session was aimed at the likes of HSBC who are operating in multiple jurisdictions, like nothing to do with a standard business and of financial planning and the guys from the FCA were really clever guys knew what they were talking about you know great great style of presentation and delivery but absolutely not suitable for people who are just running financial planning businesses and it it harps back to what you were saying there Steve which is that they need to sharpen their sword and get the right principle of helping people in the right way to the right sections of the profession because I mean, it's just a lot, quite a lot of the stuff that comes out from us. So much jargon. And as you say, it leads to a cottage industry of deciphering it, depending on who your compliance consultant is or who you happen to read. And that really needs to go. Another aspect of this that, um, again, Steve, I've heard you talk about is, so there's the regulatory perimeter. And quite a lot of the ill that befalls consumers is a result of them taking up products that out, sit outside the FCA's remit. So the FCA shrugs and says, well, by definition, it's unregulated. It's not our fault. We, we can't touch that. And you get the, the unregulated introducers who acted on and back, back to some of the DB transfer stuff or the people flogging unregulated investment schemes, you know, so some, some Costa Rican forestry or whatever. And it feels like not only does the FCA make life pretty hard for a lot of the regulated businesses, they're also persistently managing to drop the ball on quite a lot of the unregulated stuff and and, and creating that sort of perimeter to keep people inside the fence and not 
straying off to to throw away the, their scarce resources on stuff that's just basically designed to to steal money from them. Yeah, I mean, there's a big argument for taking a huge step back, Tom, and saying if I am parting with some of my own personal money, either directly or indirectly via an intermediary, through some form of investment vehicle, then that has to be captured through some kind of safety net or jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. It just, I mean, that, that just feels like if one of the benefits of working from the Landcat is you can have these kind of thought experiments because you're not working in the day-to-day lives of people. But if you were to break everything down again, start again from scratch, that would certainly not be the case uh, that the, the, the scenario that Tom's outlined would, would happen. It just wouldn't. But that's me talking in highfalutin terms without offering a, a yeah, solution. If, if I wanted to get to there, I wouldn't start from here. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, of course. But, yeah. I think, but I think that's right. You know, whenever you step back with a, you know, with that sort of blank page and you look at the stuff that's outside of the perimeter of regulation, you do question, why is that allowed to go on? But it's, um, only, it's only 10 years. Uh, I'm looking at you here, Steve. 10 years since the FCA was born out of the FSA. It was around... 2012, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, Phil, it was just before I joined Alanka, I think, Tom, and I'm coming up for nine years, so I, my memory since children has, has been ruined. <laughs> but that, that certainly feels right. Right, so, we'll go so, so we had that big <laughs> regulatory rebirth around 10 years ago. Yeah. And yet we're all sitting here saying, well, this doesn't work. <laughs> so I'm kind of interested, you know, we heard John Glenn from the Treasury recently talking about basically the brave new world of post-Brexit Britain and how they were going to reinvent solvency too, which I know is a big insurance company thing. But, you know, maybe if anything good is going to come out of Brexit, maybe it will be the opportunity just to kind of rethink a regulatory framework that is actually better designed for the UK than a lot of the stuff that got handed down mm-hmm. to us from Europe in the past. Yeah. I mean, Lisa, what's your experience of how your customers perceive that kind of stuff? Do they ever talk about it? Well, I think that that example that I used earlier, the method charge, and that was a that was the conversation I had to have with quite a few clients because my morals wouldn't let me put live fun in front of them. And I think I probably agree there with Tom to say that there's probably an opportunity there for a bit more sort of common sense approaching to, you know, disclosing pricing and things like that and trying to, I suppose, trying to get to what a lot of the spirit of the legislation is, which is to be open and honest about costs and charges and things like that. But for clients, I think that they just want to have a safe environment for their money. You know, it's not... It, it, they're not really asking for anything that I think that's really ridiculous or is that going to be affected greatly by Brexit? Depends what the rules and things come out to be, I suppose. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it really does. And I don't know if with everything on their plate, if really changing a lot in that area is really much of a priority because you know a lot of the European legislation is designed around you know, these safety nets and I don't know if the really short-term intention is to, is to move very much of that. It's more likely that we'll have 10 years of trying to work out how can people actually operate in the new environment, you know, with things like that and trade of goods and services that are maybe not even financial. I think that the government will be more caught up with that. My clients aren't really worried about it, to be honest. I don't, I don't, it's not something that they've talked about very much, no. Uh, okay, I was just saying, so uh, there's just one more thing I want to ask you guys, and this might be a blind alley, just kind of me just kind of venting a particular gripe of mine at the moment. <laughs> so just, just shut me down if, if that's the right thing to do. But I'm just perennially struck looking at the mortgage market and I've been doing some work around equity release but you know we had to take out a, a self-built mortgage when we were building our house a few years ago and I paid that off but again you know when I've remortgaged in the past I've just been struck by how stuck I mean not in the 20th century in the 19th century 
so much of mortgage processes and practices are. So we're kind of looping a bit back around to some of your points about the tech. But at least I don't even know if you you guys do mortgage business at all. But why is it that that aspect of financial planning, of lending, of equity release as well, why is it that the admin just seems to be so persistently poor? Or is that just my own personal experience? And actually, it's just all rubbish. And I've just been given a brief window into the world you guys live in. We don't do mortgages. I know a few people historically who have and every other sort of professional person that I've ever really spoken to about it just said it's just not profitable. And part, part of the reason why it isn't profitable is because of this rubbish admin. I don't know what the reason for that is. If it's been really cynical, I would suspect it's provider-led because as soon as you make price and comparison and application administration slick, easy, and easily to duplicate across different providers, it's just a race to the bottom on price. Right, so it's an incumbency factor. You know, we've got we've got a big share of the market, and this is a way to hold on to it. Well, I I don't know, but that's what I would suspect. It seems to be what some people have said to me, but as I say, I don't practice in that area. I had a sort of a similar admin experience with my own mortgage, and I remember whenever I was redoing some, I think in the middle of the pandemic, a lady from it was nationwide, and she said to me, "Oh, well, we're." changed all of our um, loan to value rates and things like that just because we don't we don't need them to be high anymore because we've got such a demand for business and if you want to um, we're experiencing above work. average business flows <laughs> <laughs> and we were doing some work on the house and she had said so if you want to get this mortgage through then uh, you take at least five weeks for us to look at your application and I thought well, it was a good job I was coming here ahead of time mm. and just because you're a business owner and they wanted to obviously look through your accounts and things like that which I totally expected but it was a mortgage lender's market. I suppose it's always going to be because they want to make money. But you know, if you need a mortgage, you need a mortgage. So you're just going to have to go through the the treacle. There's not much of an incentive for you not to because there's no there's no alternative. Interesting. Okay. On that happy note, we'll leave it. <laughs> <laughs> it will get better, Steve. Maybe you need to report on the mortgage market next. So yeah, maybe. I mean, what I would say is that I have been speaking to a few advisors about this in the past week or so particularly around equity release, as you know, Tom. And just to echo a lot of what Lisa said there, but it is the perception is definitely that the mortgage side of things is fundamentally more transactional. And that there's a little bit of a paradox there for me that's emerging between something like equity release, where if you think about everything that we know about the modern financial planning process over in our part of the, the world traditionally and where that's evolving around consultative and behavioral led and particularly the likes of cash flow modeling and the way that's revolutionized how to bring stuff to life wouldn't it be the case that something like cash flow modeling and behavioral planning that has an absolutely clear adoption over in mortgage world but because of the way that the whether it's brokerage or the way it's remunerated it is set up to be more transactional so there is that like clear disconnect there and maybe if we're going to bring something like equity release into you know whatever what are we in now 21st century those kind of setups and and processes that need to be that need to be brought along with it i don't know that's just my initial observations good stuff steve lisa it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you both you too thanks for having us hope you enjoyed this conversation if you did then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes the sound engineer was ross burns thank you for listening